Welcome to episode 58 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I am your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And so today we are continuing our Publishing 101 Redux, as I've been Mm -hmm. calling it, and we are continuing on with submissions. So the last time we talked about submissions, we sort of talked about the uh, rationale and the decision-making. I think that goes behind why a house acquires a book, what it takes for a house to acquire a book. Um, and so this time I think we maybe we want to talk about it a little bit from the author point of view, which I don't think we really discussed the last time Yeah, as far as I know. So, um, and I'll just be completely honest with y'all. Submission is the absolute worst part <laughs> of being an author. <laughs> um... And even myself, and I am not an anxious person at all. I don't have anxiety. I don't normally suffer from it. But I was kind of beyond, like, beside myself when I was on submission. And I wasn't even on submission for very long. I was only on submission for about six months. And the last two of which was just my agent and my editor kind of going back and forth and sort of rehashing terms and and stuff like that. So it wasn't even that long of a process for me, but the worst part about submission, I think for most authors is it's a completely opaque process. You have no idea where you stand at any, like you don't, you don't have no idea where you stand either in the Mm -hmm. editors to be read list. You have no idea where you stand in the publishing house. You don't know if anybody likes it because no news is no news, you know, And it's the absolute worst part. And so I think it's the part where everybody freaks out and like asks each other, asks their agent, what does this mean? Is this good news? Is this bad news? You know, so that's, that's the, the angle I'm going to approach it from today. So the first thing I want to let you know is you are not alone. Um, you were absolutely not alone. And I know it sometimes seems that way when, when you're on submission, because People don't talk about it for good reason, because, well, first of all, it just seems a little bit gauche to complain about how long you're on submission in public. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's not like it's a bad thing, but it just seems weird. Like, oh, I went on submission and, you know, you were like, oh, I've been on submission for six months, nine months, 10 months, however long it was. When you admit that in public, it just seems weird. At least to me, it seems weird. And I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't necessarily feel that way from the inner perspective of um, you know, of an author because I've never been an author on submission and I'm sure that that's a unique experience to be in. And I don't have that. Um, but it is I think hard because unlike querying, which anyone can do and anyone can feel that pain and commiserate, um submission is only reserved for those who have secured representation. And so it's not a universal stage of publishing. Not everybody gets there. And so I think 
that's where that self-consciousness might come in, in that, you know, you know, you've at least made it to a certain stage that other people haven't. And so it seems like if you were to complain about it, that other people would be resentful of that, which they shouldn't be, but they might be. Yeah, it's a little bit, even though it's not going to be intended that way, it can be read perhaps as like a humble brag. Mm. It's not intended to be if you're talking about being on submission. And it is true, you know, being in the querying trenches is pretty democratic. Everyone goes through it. Anybody who wants to be a writer anyway, but not everybody comes out of the query trenches, at least not with one manuscript, you know, maybe not the manuscript that they're querying at that time. Maybe it's going to be another manuscript or it's going to be at a different time, but not necessarily everybody comes out of the query trenches at the same time. And the same thing is actually true with submission. Like not every manuscript gets sold and it just varies so widely. But the other reason I feel like it's hard to talk about submission publicly is money. And I, and personally, I think it is absolutely to everyone's benefit to be completely transparent about money in publishing, you know, the size of your advance, your first print run, all of that sort of stuff. So just people have data to work from, but we do, we are, at least in America, we're in a culture where it's just not considered, you know, appropriate to talk about money openly. We don't talk about our salaries. We don't talk about what other people make. It's just considered rude. So when money gets into it, it necessarily complicates things because, and I did write a pub crawl post that went up today about how publishing is not a meritocracy. And that's sort of the hardest thing I think for people to get their minds around because theoretically, or at least you know, if you were a good student in school, like I was, you know, you put in the work, you study hard and you get the good grade, but that is not at all true in publishing. You could work hard at your craft and you can write a, a, you know, a decent book, but when it's sold, you may not sell it for a lot of money, you know, and sometimes that's embarrassing to talk about, you know, especially, especially because we all hear everyone's good news, but we don't ever really hear anybody's meh or bad news. <laughs> um, you know, because we always hear those like, oh, so-and-so sold a book for six figures or so-and-so, you know, was at a multi-house auction or so-and-so has a film deal or whatever. And if that doesn't happen to you, then I think you feel insecure. Like what is wrong with my book? What is wrong mm -hmm. with what I, you know, what is wrong with me? And I understand why writers think like that, but it doesn't help anybody in the long run to think like that because publishing is a cruel, cruel, cold-hearted mistress. <laughs> it just doesn't care. <laughs> doesn't care the amount of time or effort you put into your craft. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of the other part about submission that's hard to talk about, you know? So the other thing I want to talk about today that I don't think we necessarily touched on in, in particular depth the last time is length of submission time. Mm. Because I do sometimes get asked, oh, I've been on submission for two weeks, you know, and I haven't heard back yet. Is that a good sign or a bad sign? Oh, I've been on submission for 13 months and I, you know, I haven't really gotten anything. Is that a good sign or a bad sign? And 
everyone's submission story is different. But do you think, Kelly, that there is a good or bad sign with the length of time your book has been on submission for? Um, yes or no. Yes or no. It is, um, you know, obviously if we're talking years instead of months, you know, that could be just a sign that that project is just, you just need to put it away and move on to the next thing. Um, but in terms of months or even the first year, when books are submitted to editors, you know, JJ and I have talked about this a little bit before that there's so much involved in being an editor beyond just reading manuscripts. There's actually quite a lot of other work that takes up the majority of these editors' time at their day job. And most of them do their reading at home on their, you know, on their own time off the clock. Um, and so, you know, they have client, not, not client, but, but published author, they're contracted, there we go, that's the word, they're contracted authors, manuscripts that they need to, you know, prioritize because those are coming up in the production schedule and they have deadlines to hit. And then they have their other responsibilities. And then they're going to be reading new submissions in and between all those other things. And, you know, editors get a, a regular avalanche of submissions at any given time. So there's a lot of reading that they have to do. And so it just, in some ways, takes time. And that time is just something you have to build in to your expectations that I think most agents don't even really follow up with editors until it's been like two months. <laughs> and then they might, you know, check up if they haven't heard anything back yet. Um, so some of that is just time built into the process. It's just the time that it takes. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad sign. There could be lots of reasons why the editor hasn't gotten to your submission yet that don't have anything to do with the quality of your work. Um, you know, certainly once people read something and if they get really excited about it, they do tend to move quickly. Um, but that might not happen until, you know, they pick up your book, which might not be for the first six weeks after it's landed in their inbox. So, you know, I do think you have to build some time into your expectations and know that it's just a lengthy process. I, again, I'm going to be bad cop here. I would say that the longer you are on submission, the less likely, not that it's impossible, but the less likely you will have of getting either a large deal mm. or that sort of super big buzz that comes behind your book. And I don't want to discourage people who have been on submission for a long time because there are people out there who've been on submission for a while and who have sold their projects and have gone on to be very successful. But I think the, this idea that, you know, you get discovered overnight and you get paid a lot of money and you get a whole bunch of hype and excitement behind you, that doesn't happen for everyone, but there is a kernel of truth to the speed at which books get acquired. Yes. The the quicker your book gets acquired, 
the more excitement there generally, the more pre-publication buzz there generally tends to be. Now, mm. buzz is a tricky thing because you want buzz clearly before your book comes out, but you also don't want to spend that buzz too soon. And there are projects that I've seen that went for a lot of money that in, in auctions that I've participated in or that I was, you know, outbid on, I've seen a lot of buzz go for these books and then ultimately that buzz fizzles fizzles out or it didn't land on publication as strong as the publisher intended and then that book was considered a bomb mm-hmm. or it flopped or it, and it didn't make back the money that the, the publisher sunk into it. So again, that's a double-edged sword. But I will say that the quicker your book gets picked up, the more likely that you will have buzz momentum behind your book. Yeah. I mean, I do think that's true. I think even from querying, you can kind of see that because when I get a query in my inbox and I read it, I pretty much know immediately whether or not that's going to be something that I'm going to request to see more of. And if I know I'm going to request it, I'm going to request it right away because it's something that I want and that I'm excited about. And then when I get the requested manuscript, if I start to read it and it's interesting and it's good, I'm going to keep reading it until I finish. And then I'm going to make an offer of representation. So those things happen really quickly. And it's similar with, with editors. If you read something that you like, you start putting together your proposal for acquisitions immediately and you start to get to work on that. And if it's just something that you're kind of on the fence about where you're like, oh, well, I like it, but I don't know, that slows you down. And of course, if you're not really interested in it at all, that slows it down. And so I, I do think that you are right when you say that, that, you know, when something is going to click, you know that pretty much off the bat and your response time picks up considerably. Yeah. And I think I did talk about, you know, when I was an editor, how I treated my submissions, which is I tried to be as fair as possible. I tried to read the oldest first, Mm -hmm. but, and I'll be completely honest because, you know, so much of this business in this industry is subjective. If I got in another submission that the, that sounds more exciting to me, that seems more, more likely to be up my alley, I was probably going to read that first because, uh-huh. you know, this is just something that's more interesting to me. And the same thing, of course, and the same thing is like, so if, if another house has interest on this project and you haven't read it yet, of course, that's going to move it up on your, your list of things to read. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to miss out on something, you know, interest begets interest essentially. So, you know, you go a long time. But, you know, it doesn't actually necessarily mean anything either because Kelly said, you know, once there is interest, things move quickly. But that interest may not come until, you know, six, eight months down the line. So, you know, don't necessarily be discouraged that, oh, you know, I haven't heard in the first, you know, month. Therefore, I'm never, I'm not going to have a successful deal. That's not true at all. But, mm. you know, the longer something goes on without interest, then... It's kind of, it's sort of a diminishing t- 
tail, I guess. And I, I, like I said, I'm generally bad cop. I'm always giving you guys kind of depressing news about this business. But the other thing is I want to tell you the hard truths so it isn't so hard when you experience it for the first time. When somebody doesn't alert you to or warn you about the worst that can happen. And the worst that can happen is not necessarily like fatal or life-threatening or anything like that in publishing at all. You know, the worst that happens is that your book doesn't sell. Okay, so you try and sell the next one. You know, that's, and it's a dis crushing disappointment at the time your book doesn't sell. And I don't want to diminish that either. But, you know, the worst that can happen in this situation is you just don't sell. But mm -hmm. I want to be honest with you. That's kind of how I function when something was exciting to me that got priority. Just, I wanted to read it as opposed mm -hmm. to a lot of the other things that I got, I felt obligated to read. And unlike Kelly, who can request as an agent, who can request anything that sounds interesting to her, I would generally have to read everything that comes come came my way. Now, as the longer I was in the industry, the less likely I was going to get works that didn't interest me because I was developing relationships with these agents. We went out to lunch and we talked about these things. But sometimes there's just misses. You know, the agent will send mm -hmm. you something, you know, and be like, oh, maybe you'll like this. And like on like on paper, it sounds like it could be something that I like. But when I actually read it and the execution just isn't, isn't what I like at all. Mm -hmm. Um I also did nonfiction, which was a little bit different. I did nonfiction and I had a lot of interest, different varying interests. And I would tell kind of nonfiction agents about that. And sometimes I'd get stuff in. They kind of just heard like, oh, I liked historical like or history. And they kind of like send me something. And I just be like, but that is not what I was looking for. History is a very broad term. I tend to like women's history. So that was something mm -hmm. that I was, you know, I liked you know, well-behaved women, you know, rarely make history, right? So I tended to like kind of biopics or not biopics, but, you know, biographies or sort of narrative nonfiction about interesting women, particularly artists, you know, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I just get sort of generic history type books mm -hmm. that I call dad books. Yeah. <laughs> like my dad reads this kind of nonfiction and I don't, knock that at all, but it's not the type of fiction, nonfiction that I wanted to work on. Uh. <laughs> so I have a question for you in terms of, um, your editing life when you were an editor and receiving submissions from agents, did you have expectations or preferences in the way that books were pitched to you? Because I know some agents will just shoot off an email and be like, here's the attached manuscript by so-and-so let me know what you think without pitching the book at all. And then other agents will do essentially something similar to a query letter where they'll kind of tell you about the project, um, you know, and so I've seen lots of different approaches and I'm just curious if you as an editor had a specific approach that you liked best or if it didn't matter to you. Oh, I definitely liked having a quote query letter in front of it. I want to know what this mm -hmm. book, what is interesting about this book. I want yeah. to know that. Um, I actually kind of liked it when agents called me to pitch stuff. It also depended on the agent, to be honest, because there were a couple of agents that I didn't mind picking up the phone for, that we had a very good rapport, easy phone rapport. And then there were other agents who I didn't like to take the phone from. 
And it isn't because they were a terrible agent. It's just that it was awkward over the phone and, you know, it just didn't work out that way. And so I preferred that they would email. But again, that's the kind of relationship driven part of publishing. Right. But I would, I did prefer a pitch. I wanted to know what I was getting into. So, you know, over the phone, I did like it when agents called me and said, look, I have this project. It's about this. And they sort of talk about it. And kind of over the phone, I could hear the enthusiasm that they have for this Mm -hmm. project. And so I was far more likely to receive it kindly. But again, it depended on the agent. Um (laughs) I don't like it. I did not like it when agents sent me stuff with no description and just an attachment. Um, because to me, it, it, you know, like we said in the last uh, podcast episode that, you know, when you're querying agents, you want to be specific. You want to tailor their queries to their interests. And when I just kind of get, here's, an, a, here's a, a manuscript and no explanation of why they sent it to me. I'm not likely to look at that particularly favorably, especially if that agent and I don't have a prior relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it is a very relationship driven business. So if an agent I've not met or not spoken to or not previously had correspondence with kind of pitches me out of the blue, I kind of want to know why, like, how did you get my name? How did you find out what I was interested in, you know, and not because I'm I'm necessarily suspicious, but I'm just curious, like, okay, how, you know, where did you get my name from? Uh, You know, and sometimes, you know, often if I don't acquire the project that they sent me, then at least I'll be like, okay, let me take you out to lunch and talk about what it is Mm -hmm. I'm looking for specifically. Um, And you know, I prefer that. So I don't like, I don't like the cold call in that we don't have a previously established relationship. Don't call me, if, you know, don't cold call me like that. And don't just drop something in my inbox because I'm just gonna be like, well, what is this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why am I supposed to like this? Why am I supposed to read this? Why should I care? Kind of. So I kind of back to the length of the submission thing. And it's not necessarily about the length exactly, but I do want to talk about when it is time to shelve a project. Mm. And obviously this is going to be different from person to person. And so, well, let me ask you, what is your submission strategy? Um, kind of like, you said before, I guess I'm, I'm having trouble with my mic today, guys. Sorry about that. Um, like you said before, I also believe that um, you need to know why you're querying specific editors, know why you're submitting to them. Um, you know, you can't just Google a bunch of editors and send stuff out. You have to know a person's taste and what it is that they're looking for and feel that you've found a good match of editor and project. So I definitely believe in that matchmaking aspect of it and tailoring your submission lists, um, with care and, you know, with consideration for the project that you have that's going out. And then I, I think that submissions and rounds is a good idea the same way that I think, you know, it's similar with agents when you query. Um, I would choose, what's a good number? I think probably about five max at any given time. So I would say, yeah, yeah. Some people have a very small submission list. I had 15 in my first round. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess it does depend on the type of project and, and where you're going with it. Um, but yeah, so I would, I would say that you'd tailor your submission list. You'd have the list of names, be it five or 15 that you're going to send to and you send it out and then you wait (laughs) and depending on the feedback you get or what happens in that first round, um, if the book does not get an offer, then you'd move on to another round. I think most books should at least get two rounds of submissions. Um, and beyond two rounds though, then it becomes, I think you want to start looking closely at the type of feedback that you're getting from editors. Is the feedback consistent across the board? Is everyone kind of noticing the same or similar issues with the book and you're getting that in all the rejections? Um, are the, you know, rejections all over the place and people are pointing out completely different things at that point? I think after two rounds of submission, you want to kind of sit down and and think a little bit about your next steps, which might involve pulling the project back and revising. Um, it might involve, you know, shelving it and working on the next thing. Or it could involve a third round of submissions if you think that, you know, that there's still life in that book as it stands. But I think after two rounds of submissions is probably where I'd sit down and talk to my author and figure out where we're going to go from there. I think, again, I, yeah, I would agree with Kelly that it depends on the feedback you're getting. Because if the feedback you're getting is close, but mm-hmm. not for me, like, oh, I like the writing and I like the idea, it just didn't resonate with me or, you know, something like that, then I would say, keep going. Yeah. Um, you know, exhaust all the editors you can find because somebody will connect with your work. Um, you know, I, I think, but on the flip side, if you're getting a bunch of, you know, meh, this is the thing about publishing. The absolute response that you do not want to get to anything is indifference. Yeah. It better to be hated. Yes, I would agree. It's better to elicit a strong reaction, even if that reaction is dislike, because dislike is memorable. And I'll be completely honest, the books that are good and quiet are the hardest to make work. And that isn't because the books aren't worthy or they're not good. Because many of them are. Many of them are great. Many of them are award-worthy. But getting, you know, publishing is a business. So, you know, publishers have to make money. So you have to weigh the fact that it's going to be hard to sell sell this book if we can't get people excited about it. If the response, so if the response you're getting is kind of, it's good, it's fine, but there's no emotion behind that and it's just kind of meh Mm. I think that is an indication that you should shelve it I think because it's hard to fake enthusiasm for a project yeah yeah it's really hard yeah if you're if you're getting just kind of blah feedback I would say maybe it's time to shelve it and query or submit the next one 
Yeah. I think also when you get that feedback, if you get this consistently, not just from one person, but if you get consistent feedback, that's like, I don't know how to market this. I don't know where this fits in the market. Um, if you get that consistently across the board, you know, again, that's that same thing. It's about sales. It's about not being able to know what to do with it. It might be great, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah, it's because when you're trying to acquire a book, you need a vision for it, right? Mm -hmm. You need to say, okay, with every book that I've wanted to buy, I knew pretty much immediately, okay, these are the books I'm going to cop it to. This is kind of what I want the cover to look like. This is who I would approach for blurbs. I knew that as soon as I picked up a book that I wanted to buy. Mm-hmm. What that indicates to me is that I know how to publish this. I know who the audience would be. I know how to get this out there in a way that get people to talk about it, you know, to get people excited about it. If I get a book that I think is great, and there were a couple of books I did get that I really loved that I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know who I would ask for blurbs. I don't know what it would look like on the shelves. I don't know what a cover would look like. I don't know any of those things. That That's what I mean when I say I don't know how to publish this. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that the book is not worthy. It just means I don't know. I don't know how to do this. I don't know. So, you know, maybe somebody else who knows better than I will will be able to pick up this project. But if that's a response you're getting from everybody, uh, <laughs> you know, though, for a lot of those it may just be a matter of time. Like the market just isn't ready for you yet. But if another book breaks out and suddenly you can compare your book to that, then there's an opening in the market for you. And I'll use a personal example. So a lot of the rejections that I got for winter song, uh, were, we don't know what to do with this. Now, granted, we did go out to adult editors first, um, and it just happened to be that my publisher does both adult and YA. So, but not mm-hmm. not every publishing house is like this. And in fact, most of the time, it's like a strict division. You either are adult or you are children's. But so we did go out in the first round to a bunch of adult editors, and a lot of them said, "We love this. We don't know what to do with it. It's not romance. It's a little too commercial to be pushed as literary fiction." It's not really fantasy the way a lot of people conceive of adult fantasy, like genre fiction. It's, you know, they're like, we don't know what to do with it, but we like it. So, and then the book that broke out that people were like, oh, I understand what this book is like now was Naomi Novik's Uprooted. And people were like, oh, I get it. So at that point, people could start to see, okay, so that's what your book was like. And that happened to be after my book was acquired, that Naomi Novik's Uprooted came out. And I love that book, by the way. If you guys haven't read it, it's great. Um, but it helped a lot with marketing in-house because people had heard about this book. And people were like, oh, now I know where it goes on the shelf. I know, you know who to pitch it to. I know which accounts might be interested in. I know what the audience is. I know where I might be able to pitch it to for publicity, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, in the case of your book, it may just be it's not the right time yet. So don't give up hope. Um, the time to shelve something though, is I would definitely say when you're, when the answers you're getting across mo like the consistently is meh, 
it's good. Eh, it's just, you know, I don't love it enough. Like, it's honestly the worst rejection to get is I don't love it enough to publish it. Yeah. It's actually a rejection rejection I've given, so I do feel a little bit bad about it, but that's often all I can say about a project is it's good, but I just don't have any passion for it. Then that is going to kind of fizzle and die on the shelves. It sounds terrible, but it is what it is. Yeah. So here's another question I have. So on your rounds of submission... How do you pick who's in those rounds? Okay, I'm going to be a little bit more specific. Is it tiered? (laughs) Yes, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, because I think you would have your your dream editors, right? Or publishing houses. Um, You know, your reach for the stars, best hopes um, after you've done your research. The people you most want to work with. And then, you know, and of course the other people on your list, you should, you should not be submitting to anyone, agents or editors, uh, don't submit to people that you don't want to work with. So like, so when I say rounds of submission and tiers of submission, that's not to say that the people on the lower tiers are garbage. Like That's right. not, that's not what we're saying <laughs> at all. Um, you know, don't, don't let your agent submit to places that your agent can't you know, clearly recommend, um, and don't query to agents who you don't actually want to represent you. Um, it's not enough to just have an agent or just have an editor. You want to make sure you have the right one. Um, someone that you can have a positive business relationship with. So, um, I do think that I would probably tier my submissions, um, with some input from my authors because I think that, you run the risk of saturating the publishing houses with your work. You know, a lot of people in this business are friends with one another and have relationships outside of work. And, you know, if, if you've sent off this manuscript to everyone in town, eventually everybody's going to know that you're just sending it to everybody. Um, so I do think you need to be selective. Here's the other question. The, it kind of goes with this. When it comes to tiers of publishers, where do you draw the line when it comes to small publishers? That's a hard line to draw. And it's been a controversial and active <laughs> topic in the last year or so, um, with different things going on. The reason that I think it's complicated is that, um, I think small publishers are great. I think they do amazing things for authors. I think you can get, um, a really great publishing experience with a small press. Um, and I think that more and more, there's a lot of new presses starting out And it's hard because it's exciting to see new small presses come out with a vision, with a mission, and want to contribute and accomplish great things within the publishing industry. And as an agent, um, I I am interested in those places and I want to be um, supportive of those places when I see that they have a drive and desire to contribute um, in new and meaningful ways to the publishing industry. And yet... 
as an agent, I am wary to submit my authors to any place that isn't proven um, to be a thriving and established press. And I am also hesitant because I am a contracts person. I know a lot about contracts. And this is not to say that all small press contracts are bad. They're not. Uh, but I would be going over that contract with as delicate a fine tooth comb as I would over any big house contract um, and make sure that it's something that I feel comfortable with my author signing. And so if I was going to submit to small presses, I would personally probably draw the line at those that had been in business for a decent amount of time that um, were putting out good books um, whose authors felt like their experiences with that house were positive. Um, you know, I would do my research just like anything else. A small press is not necessarily a scam, but you know, as much as I want small presses to succeed and, and in order to succeed, they need people to submit to them and have good books. Um, it's hard to take that first leap. Um, it's hard to be the person who's advising authors. Yes. Go with this unproven circumstance and hope, you know, hope that it works out for you. My thought about small presses is that the best and most reputable small presses are extremely niche. Mm -hmm. Like they do mystery or they do a specific kind of nonfiction like essays or novellas or, and the really, like there are a lot of small presses and sometimes that would often be a suggestion I would make to an agent. Like they would send me a manuscript and I would say, this is really good but I don't think it's something that we can do well. This will get lost in the shuffle. But if you take it to this X small publisher, you know, for example, like Grey Wolf Press, Free Press, you know, mm. kind of small, small houses that do really literary work but put out beautiful books. Um, otherwise, it might get lost in the shuffle within, within a bigger house. Sometimes I do suggest that. Like, I think you would have better success as somebody who really does this kind of book really well. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there is a little bit of a reputation that small presses get that they're sort of the bottom of the barrel in that you've exhausted all the options at the big five and then the mid-sized publishers, so the small presses are what's left. I think that's a little bit unfair for some small presses. Yes. But there is some truth to that as well. You know, you can if you exhaust one round and then you exhaust the next round, your neck and you run out of mid to big publishers to submit to. So that's kind of the question I have is when you're at that point, would you suggest to your author, hey, you know, maybe why don't we shelve this for now and see if the market changes? Mm -hmm. Or would you say, hey, let's try these small presses? I think it really depends on the author and the book and the author's career path that we've discussed. Um, I know a lot of authors debut with small houses and then go on to publish with big publishing houses later. And that's great. And that is certainly a viable career path. 
And, you know, it goes the other way too. Sometimes people publish with big houses and then they want more of an intimate publishing experience. And so they go down to a mid-list or a smaller publisher. Um, I don't think there's any correct or incorrect career path for authors to take, but I do think that the different paths have pros and cons. And so, you know, that's something that I would want to discuss with the author and, and about the book, you know, some, some books can do well in, in small presses, in that environment, in that niche house where they specialize in this and they know how to market it and they know what to do with it. Um, you know, but I would want to make sure that that's, that that's the right fit. I wouldn't want to, to, to sell the book just to sell the book. You know what I mean? Like there are places where you can go, where you could be guaranteed a sale and it might be for pennies, you know, but technically you could have a book sale. And I don't think that that's necessarily in the author's best interest. So if it got to a point where I was trying to sell the book just to sell it, um, then I might, I would most likely suggest, Hey, let's set this aside. What else are you working on? You know, let's, let's try something else. Um, because to me, I think, of course I'm an agent. I want to sell your book. I don't get paid until I sell your book. So of course, <laughs> if I want to get paid, I want to sell your book, but, um, I don't want to just sell it to anyone. I don't want to just sell it anywhere. And I don't want to do it just for the sake of being able to say that I did it. I want to make sure that it's really the right thing for you. And, you know, so I think that, that it really, when you get to that point, I think that's what you have to consider. Why are we approaching this tier of publisher now? And is it out of desperation or is it because we really think that a positive thing can come out of this? Yeah. So like I said, this is not to knock on small publishers at all. Not at all. But as I said before, I do think that the best small publishers are very niche in that they do a specific kind of book and it's kind of narrow in terms of category, but they do that specific kind of book extremely well. Um, and, you know, the other advantage of going with a small press, of course, is if, especially if they are the reputable, really sort of craftsman-like small press, yes, your advance may be much smaller, but you are likely to probably get a bigger cut of the royalties or, you know, they'll do things kind of out of the box and they, they're kind of, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to make this sound pejorative anyway, but they're kind of narrow, but deep, you mm. know, they have a very narrow sort of ability to focus uh, on a specific kind of book, but they really know how to get every last bit of mileage out of that specific kind of book. So, you know, I think that's something you, sh you should take into consideration and it is something you should talk to your agent about when it comes to, all right, we've exhausted all of the options that we have at the bigger and mid-sized publishers. Do we want to shelve it? Do we even want to self-pub it? Because I know a lot of agents do assist their clients with self-publishing. You know, they'll either refer them to editors. They might do foreign deals on their behalf. Even if it doesn't smell, sell domestically, they can still do foreign deals for their client. So there's a lot of other options that don't necessarily mean that you go with a small press. But I would think very carefully that, okay, if I go with the small press, it's because they know what to do with my book and they're going to do it well. Mm -hmm. So... 
I guess the last thing I would say about submission, and this kind of I think we'll maybe talk about more in like the acquisitions part and specifically I think maybe in the money part of this segment, but I can usually sense when at least when I was an editor, I can sense when I was somebody's last resort, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's never a great feeling to be like, oh, well, I've exhausted no. everyone else, so here you go. Like, I'm like, oh, great, thanks. Like, um, so I could almost always sense that. So I would think about that, too, before you kind of go out that way. And, but say you've been on submission for, like, 13 months, and you're just not hearing back at all. You know, neither yay or nay. Would you say it's time to shelve that? Would you say I'm withdrawing this project? I don't know. I mean, I would nudge people first. <laughs> I would say, yeah, hey, say you've, you've had this for a million years. <laughs> yeah, but you've been nudging and yeah. you still have no response. Yeah, I mean, if if I'm just not getting anything and I've followed up with people, then I think yes, because I think to me that that leaves you again in that kind of meh category that we were talking about before, where yeah. if they didn't want it, they would let me know because, you know, all of us, all anybody wants is to clear out their inbox and get stuff off their desk. So if they can reject it and tell me no, they're going to tell me no. Yep. Um, you know, and likewise, if they want it, they're going to, you know, push for that and make that happen. And so if you're just not hearing anything and people are like, oh, yeah, that one, I'll get to that. You know, I'll be in touch in a few weeks. And then a few weeks later, it's like, right, this book. Okay. That's just not, um, I think I would withdraw it, you know, and maybe even just withdraw it and shelve it and work on something else and bring it back later and see if, you know, something different, you know, is in the air or people are ready for a different type of book or what. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like you said earlier, I think indifference is just a death knell. Yeah. And we did, I think, also touch on this in our last episode about submission, but there is submission etiquette in that you do not submit to the same editor or you do not admit, mm -hmm. submit to two editors in the same house. That's yep. a pretty big no-no. Um, you do not... You, well, you can submit to different editors in the same big house, but not the same imprint. Imprint. <laughs> And, you know, this is where an agent is absolutely helpful because they would know, you know, they would know, you know, for example, my publisher, uh, Thomas Dunn is part of St. Martin's Press, but it it's part of St. Martin's Press and it has a separate editorial team, but you still can't submit to, to Thomas Dunn and St. Martin's Press. It's considered the same imprint because essentially the money is coming from the same pot. So, you know, all that little finer details etiquette wise, your, your, your agent would know. So that's what you pay your agent for essentially. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I did want to touch about that. I, there's oftentimes there's, um, like this is more of an inside thing and it's more of an editorial thing and not something from the author perspective, but there is sometimes agents will, act kind of shady about, you know, they've sent, submit something to you, but, um, or for example, they submit something to you and say, this is an exclusive for you because I think you will like it and I'm giving you first look at it. 
but they're also kind of submitting things behind your back to see if they can't maximize mm. their chances. I learn. You find out quick about stuff like that. Yeah. It's a small industry. So they're mm-hmm. kind of agents that I was like, I'm not sure I want to work with you in the future because I know what you did. Yeah. <laughs> There's also like the fake interest, like where you yeah. say, oh, you know, so-and-so has this too. And they've, they've expressed their interest. They really like it when they necessarily maybe haven't express their interest <laughs> and you kind of try yeah, to jump it, well, start. It's one thing to be like, Oh, so-and-so's reading it right now. That's fine to tell me. But if you mm-hmm. kind of come back and say, so-and-so is going to make an offer on this and they have, that's different. That's different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's definitely, obviously you don't have control over this as an author, but that is something you want to talk to your agent about, which is strategy. Like you haven't heard for a while. And so you talk to your agent, Hey, are we going to nudge them? What are we going to do to get a response? So I would maybe talk to your agent about what you're going to do in those instances because shady dealings like that just kind of make me really hesitant to buy anything from this agent in the future. Just, right. I don't trust their business dealings. So I think that's all I have to say about submission this time around. Yeah. So I agree. Yeah, so I think in future episodes of the Publishing 101 series, I think we will talk about money. We did talk about money and advances in a sort of general overview, but I think maybe we should do an, a podcast about what is considered success. Mm. Because I think a lot of people get really confused or just insecure because they don't know what is considered successful. So, yeah. So that might be our our next podcast, perhaps. But anyway, so what are you working on? Um, mostly just agenting work. <laughs> I am reading queries until it feels like um, my eyes are going to fall out of my face, which is amazing. I actually think this might be the thing that spurs me to finally get my eyes uh, looked at because I've always had perfect vision. And I hate you. <laughs> Well, well, I think the, I think we're coming to the beginning of the end here because I think I've noticed for the last like year slowly that I can't see quite as far as I used to be able to see. And, you know, I can't see things quite as clearly as I used to be able to. And all of a sudden, you know, I have to squint a little bit to read certain things. And so, um, both of my parents did eventually need glasses when they got older and they didn't get them until they were, I think, well into their 40s um, or early 50s. But probably they probably needed them when they were around my age and just put it off. So <laughs> I think with spending so much time reading queries, I've started to notice that it's harder and harder to read on my computer screen. And so I think I'm going to be uh, getting glasses soon. But reading queries is essentially the main thing that I'm doing. I have... um reached out to an author to offer representation. I do not um, officially have a response from her yet. There were other agents that also had interest in her manuscript. So um, we'll see whether I am the lucky chosen one, fingers crossed. Um, But that's been really exciting. That was Um, I prepared a lot for that call. You know, (laughs) it's really funny. It's really funny. You know, I hear like, all this stuff about authors, um, 
you know, preparing their queries and doing their research and, and, you know, having all these questions that they need to ask agents, you know, on that call. And, you know, I spent a long time preparing with the reasons why I loved this manuscript and the vision that I had for this manuscript and this person's career and, you know, my qualifications as an agent. And, you know, I, I just like put a lot of work into it. And I think I was maybe as excited and nervous as she was. And it was a really great conversation, no matter what comes of it, whether I am, uh, whether she chooses to sign with me or not, I will definitely be following her career with interest. So I'm excited. Yay. Yay. Y'all know what I'm working on. What about on. you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> book two, book two, book two. Book two other it's things. Gonna be such a, you know, it's going to be such a great day when you're not working on book two anymore. I know, anymore. when I'm working mm-hmm. on something else. Like, mm-hmm. um, I am working, I mean, I am working on other things. I am part of an anthology that's coming up. Um, well, that's coming out next year, but I am part of an anthology on mental health which I'm pretty excited about. Um, so I'm working on that and that essay is due the day my book publishes. So I'm like, eh. <laughs> um, and also I have, you know, blog posts and stuff that I'm supposed to write. And it's just like a lot of stuff in addition to writing book two that I have to do. Um, I think we have a title for book two. Yeah. But I can't say anything cause it's not official. And, but if, if it is, if we're going to stick with this title, it'll be the first thing I've ever actually titled on my own. And people liked, cause I'm bad at titles. You guys, like I just, I'm, I'm just, I always stick the most generic, boring thing on a project and be like, yeah, this works. It's fine. <laughs> somebody else will, t- somebody else will deal with it. But, um, my editor and I were kind of going back and forth with, um, you know, because we are preparing to launch, she is preparing to launch, winter 2018, which is when book two will be out. And so she just says, Hey, you know, I, I know you don't have an official title or anything, but do you have any, like at least a placeholder or something that we could use? And so we are brainstorming back and forth. And I think we have one that we all like and marketing likes so far. So if, when it becomes official or if it changes, I'll let you guys know what that is. Um, I also, my launch party is set up and it will be in on February 7th in Pasadena at Roman's bookstore. I'll be there with Marie Lou and Roshni Chakshi, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, so if any of our listeners are in the Southern California area, please come by and don't, you know, <laughs> let me sign it. <laughs> just talk to an empty room. I guess it won't be an empty room cause I'll be with my friends. So it won't be so bad. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's it. And other than that, I'm so busy with my day job that I don't have time to be working on any other creative pursuits. <laughs> um, so are you reading anything? Am I reading anything? You know, I don't think that I've actually been reading much of anything since queries started hitting my inbox and that's all that I've read because I've read a couple full manuscripts and some partials. Um, the new book that I just got the library notification for that I will probably, um, start reading soon is the second book in Jenny Hans to all the boys I've loved before series. And now this, the title of the second book is escaping me, but it's the second book, that one, that just uh that just came through in my library holds and i really loved the first book um 
I've really, really loved it. So I'm excited to read that. And I think I'm going to have to make some rules for myself about like <laughs> when I'm working and when I'm not working because I've been up almost every night in the last week until like 1130 reading queries, which on the one hand is amazing. And I'm doing it because I'm excited and I want to be doing it. But also like, I'm a really horrible person when I don't get enough sleep. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> like a really horrible person. And my daughter wakes up at 530. And so I have to be up at 530. And so I can't be up until 1130 reading queries. <laughs> so, so I think I need to make some like work hours for myself because it's hard when you work at home, you know, and you work for yourself and you're oh, trying yeah. to set like actual work hours. Uh, but I think I need to do that. And I think part of that will be like the time that I read in bed before I go to sleep will not be work reading. That will be my pleasure reading time so that, um, you know, I'll kind of make that sacred <laughs> so that I can get some books read this year. Yeah. It's always hard to find time for pleasure reading when you're reading for work, but it's mm -hmm. also extremely necessary. <laughs> like you need to read for pleasure because otherwise you'll just end up hating reading in general. You know, yeah, like it's, it's, it's crucial. like everything else in life. Yeah. So I just, so I'm still making my way through Win Witch, uh, by Susan Dennard, um, which just came out on the New York times bestseller list. So congrats, Suze. Yay. Um, Yay. I finished Wayfarer last week. I just finished rereading slash listening to Red Queen by Victoria Aveyard. Now, I read Red Queen a while back, and actually the book was, I think, like an audible deal or something, and I was like, oh, you know, I haven't read it in a while, so I'll get the audiobook and listen to it. It's pretty good, I, you know, pretty good narrator. It's it's very cinematic. I think Victoria Aveyard has a real gift for writing kind of like really action-packed, cinematic-type scenes and stuff, so it was really entertaining to listen to while I've been drowning at work. <laughs> But not a ton of reading outside of audio and, you know, stuff. I, I There are books that I want to read. This is going to sound, you know, like really kind of petty, but I really want to read the third Tearling book. But I read mm -hmm. the first two at the library and my hold has not come through yet. And I don't want to buy the third book if I don't have the other two. <laughs> and I'm not sure I would reread the first two like so I'm not sure if it's worth buying mm -hmm. so it's like if there was like you know putting this out into the universe if there was a book rental service I would absolutely be all over that <laughs> I felt like honestly like if if they're like here for $3.99 you could rent this book for like two weeks I would do that I would do it like so it, you know just so I could have it immediately Instead of, you know, waiting, because, you know, we talked before about how mood drives a lot of our, our reading. And if I'm not in the mood, yes. then I might not get to it. But I am in the mood to read this book now and I want it now. But it's it's I'm like number 65. <laughs> so yeah, welcome to my life. Ugh. Just like uh, that. So there's that. And I'm also going to read Roseblood by A.G. Howard, which is a Phantom of the Opera retelling. And if y'all know me... Oh, that's like right up your alley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> y'all know me. I love anything goth, and I especially love Phantom of the Opera. So, <laughs> so yeah, that's what I'm reading. Any off-menu recommendations? 
Um, no. Nope, nothing. Yeah, I don't have anything different from last week either. I was like, and I was like, have I listened to anything? Any new podcasts? Any? I lost my headphones somewhere. I cannot find them. And so I have not been able to listen to a podcast, music, or audiobooks at work for the last couple of days because my official last day at my day job is January 31st. And I have not been able to listen to anything. And it is excruciating. Like, I don't, I don't understand how I'm still alive, but as a result, nope, nothing. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I haven't watched any TV. I keep meaning to start Lemony Snicket's, um, series of unfortunate events, which is the Netflix series. Yeah. I've heard good things about it and it's been a long time since I've read the Lemony Snicket books though. So I feel like I want to reread them. Yeah. I found, cause I was, I was just re looking them up again because I remember the first five books pretty well. And then like the second half of the series, I'm kind of like, I don't really remember what happens in this series very much. So I feel like I, it deserves a reread. So, but I was sort of looking them up, uh, them up on like Wikipedia, looking up the titles. And I realized that the first book came out in 1999. Yeah. I did not realize I was in was high school. Old. Oh, see, I didn't yeah. read them until I was an adult. Oh, I read them when they came out. Yeah. No, I definitely, I think because the last, I think I started reading them like maybe around book six or seven. Cause I definitely remember reading like the first five in one go and I was an adult. I think I was probably just out of college. So I didn't read them until I was an adult. So I didn't grow up with Lemony Snicket Were we at roommates? All. Did you read my copies when we were roommates? I think I did. <laughs> I think I did. Because <laughs> I've got them all. They're right out there on my bookshelf. Because <laughs> I don't own them. I can see me pushing that on you. I don't own them. So it must have been your copies. And I definitely remember the first yeah. five. Like, pretty, pretty clearly. But, like, mm -hmm. the rest... The, the, like, Even the I don't remember... The, I don't remember the very end... I remember most of the rest of the series, but like maybe the last two, I don't remember super well. I do remember not liking the way that it ended or not that I didn't like it for people who've been listening to the podcast for a long time. You guys know that I have real issues with series endings. There's like basically no series ending that I've enjoyed ever in the history of time. Um, but it's not hatred like I had for um, mocking Jay or uh, Deathly Hallows where I have like deep deep, deeply rooted hatred for those, <laughs> those books mixed with love. Um, but you know, I'm angry. I'm angered by those books. I feel personally offended by those books. Um, it wasn't like that. I was just so disappointed. I think 13 was too many and I understand why he wanted to do 13. Um, cause it was kind of caught up in the whole like grim premise of the entire series, but I think it was too many books. I just definitely remember feeling like I didn't remember the characters as well. Cause a lot of the characters that came mm -hmm. like cropped up in the first half of the series were very memorable and very funny. And then kind of, as the series went on, there were kind of more characters that came in and I was like, who are these people? Why? Like, and I couldn't remember where I'd heard of it. So it got kind of confusing for me. And I definitely remember not disliking the ending, but just feeling like it ended. It just ended. Yeah. Not with, yeah, it didn't build up to an ending. It just ended. <laughs> and yeah. 
I guess you could argue in like a postmodern kind of way that's an appropriate ending for that series, but uh, I kind of wanted something more out of it, I think. You know, mm-hmm. a bigger bang of some kind. So, But yeah, I haven't watched anything, but I have heard good things about um, the Netflix series. You know, to be honest, I even yeah. like liked the movie. Like, aesthetically, I love the first movie. I loved the aesthetic of the movie. I thought the movie was gorgeous and captured Brett Helquist's illustrations perfectly. Yes. Um, there were parts of that movie that I just... And the series doesn't lend itself very well to a movie, I think, just because there's so many and they're so Mm-mm. short. So I think going with the it's TV so, show is it's better. It's all word games. Like, it's all it's all puns and word stuff, which I can't believe I love it, but I love it. <laughs> I, you know, I keep telling you, Kelly, puns are excellent. Excellent. I know. I think I know that you're right. I just don't want to admit <laughs> that you're right. I've, I've been clinging for so long to this I hate puns thing. It's like a deep, deep part of my persona, and I feel like I can't reject it now. <laughs> Who am I if I like puns? Puns are simultaneously the easiest and the hardest wordplay to get right. And most people go for the low-hanging fruit. And when they go for low-hanging fruit when it comes to puns, it's grown-worthy. But a really excellently constructed pun is just delightful in its cleverness, in my opinion, anyway. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, so that's... That's all I have. I don't believe we have any questions this week. At least I don't think so. Um, I think we got one on Twitter. Did we? I might have, I might have missed it. Yeah. Okay. On Twitter, um, from at myth underscore wish, we have any advice on writing synopsises? Synopses? What? How do you properly say that? The plural of synopsis. I don't know. I think it's synopses. Yeah, that sounds that sounds better. Any advice on writing synopses that'll draw agents and the like in without sounding cheesy or overdone? Thanks. I am just going to refer you to Suze's yeah. post on Pub Crawl, <laughs> which is like always our most popular post on any given day of any month of any year. The number one post on pub crawl is always Suze's how to write a synopsis in one page. And it's excellent. And I really don't think that I could do any better than she has done. So we'll just link to that in the show notes (laughs) and you can just uh, take a look at that because it's pretty excellent. I mean, there's also, I want to make clear that there's actually a difference between a query and a synopsis as well. Yes. A query is just like 250 to 400 words to hook an agent into reading your book. A synopsis, generally when you're required to write a synopsis, it's because you've written a proposal. If you're selling something on a proposal, and this is more common for already published writers who are, you know, submitting their next books, you know, so they, they write maybe the first three chapters and then a proposal and then a synopsis of what happens. And so in that case, you can, that's often when you're asked for a synopsis. It's unlikely that if you send a query that an agent will ask for a synopsis after the query. Because, at least, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Kelly, but if you were interested in a project, you would probably just ask for the manuscript and not. Yeah, it's true. And I, I am actually in my inbox getting synopsises instead of query letters, and it's a little weird. 
Yeah. <laughs> so if you're confused about the difference, there is a difference. A query is max like 400 words. Just to, like a really long query is not effective at all. Um, we, you know, so let, I'll refer you guys to our previous query, pro, query critique podcast where we've read and talked about what worked and didn't work in specific queries. Um, but kind of the main points we've always driven home with a query is specificity is incredibly important. The more specific you are, the better. Um, also, I think what makes a good query, at least what makes something stand out for me, is you get the essence of what why you're supposed to care in 400 words. You basically get the setup, you get the character, you get the conflict, and in as much like good specific detail as possible, and that's what will interest somebody to pick up your book. It's the same thing as, you know, if you read cover copy of a book, it's going to be the same principle. So uh, I would say read the you know, jacket copy for your favorite books or books that are similar to the work you're trying to query and kind of figure out what makes those jacket blurbs work and what made it, what made them want, make you want to pick up the book. But yeah, a query and a synopsis are two different things. Okay. I don't believe we have any other questions, so... That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing our Publishing 101 series uh, with a slightly different topic, actually. We're going to talk about sales and success. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. And we love reading them. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We do. Yep. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more articles and posts about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at sjjones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye! Bye! Bye.